This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. What happens today? I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't have a clue where this is going to go, but this is meant to be the last day of Israel and Hamas pausing fighting with hostages and prisoners still due to be released. This was the fourth day. We started this on Friday. Today's Monday, day four. I, that, that can't get past me, and I don't have a clue where it's going to go. But Hamas seems to be getting it out there, letting that drip, drip, leak, leak out, that they want to extend the current four-day pause in fighting with Israel. I mean, look, they've been getting their infrastructure has been getting destroyed. They're losing places in Gaza, which is a small city with a big population. They're losing places to go that Israel isn't going to sniff them out. But Israel doesn't want to harm hostages so far. And I was talking to somebody who is sort of a little more of a veteran about this stuff than me. Little, not a lot. Like, like this isn't somebody that's been to war or anything like that. And they make the point, it's rather remarkable that Hamas hasn't come with a story and said, you dropped an explosion and it killed three hostages. There was gunfire in a tunnel and it killed five hostages, including a couple kids. Like they could make it up. And I think you know where the world's at right now. 30 to 40 percent of the world would believe it and, and condemn Israel. Have your thoughts about about where all this is and have your thoughts about whether or not Israel's response is a proportional B um, to your liking C far over the line. You can have any of those opinions. And, and there's more than three letters that cover the opinions of this conflict. So Israel has to wonder here, is Hamas getting one over on us? Are they so, sort of living to fight another day? Keeping hostages, keeping this ceasefire going. Are they rearming, restocking? You do know that when fuel trucks get into Gaza, and there have been those, what does, what what happens to the fuel? Do you think that goes to Palestinians? Do you think that goes to the people? Or does Hamas take it, keep it for itself, arm themselves with it, and then whatever's left, now you just leave by the side of the road and someone else will pick it up. It's likely more that than, oh my goodness, thank heavens, that the people that elected us 19 years ago in the only free election that, that Hamas has had to take this, to, gra- to grab this power, you have to wonder at that point in time whether or not there's just a game being played. And Israel has to watch for this. So there's more Israeli hostages, Palestinian prisoners due to be released today. This is from uh, BBC earlier this morning. Here's an uncle named Ahol, Bas- Ahol Basora, and his nephew and new- niece were released on Sunday. So he said this on the BBC just a few hours ago. There were obviously some sort of uh, hiccups, you know, with Hamas playing games, uh, etc. Just, you know, tried to get us even more emotional. But at the end of the day, they were released. And unfortunately, they were not aware that their mom, my, my younger sister, uh, was murdered by uh, the Hamas terrorists on October 7th. And this was the first piece of news that they had to be confronted with on the arrival and meeting the grandmother uh, and the older uh, brother and the family dog, Nala. It's awful. The mom, family dog, and uh, an aunt as well, all murdered by Hamas. You've got a nine-year-old nephew, a six-year-old niece coming back. And they're either aware of this now or they've been aware of it for a chunk of time. And when you're that old, I think you're pretty conscious. Am I going to live another day or am I getting killed also? What's life like without mom the rest of my life? It's, and no one to go to, no one to hug you, 
no one to help you grieve. It's rather remarkable. Um, we don't know what, what these kids' lives are going to be on the way back, but we can imagine them in our deepest, darkest nightmares. That's the heavy emotion of this story. And that's the heavy emotion of the coverage over the weekend. It made it tough to watch to a certain point in time. There are those moments where you're just like, I've been watching this too long. I've been waiting for this prisoner exchange. I was doing that a little bit Saturday and saw a little bit of it on Friday and enough became enough. Let me switch to this. I made the mistake then of turning on uh, yesterday an interview, um, not because of the interviewer, because she's great. Most people know who Vas- Vasi Capellos is. And she had uh, Christian Freeland, Canada's finance minister on. And um, I'm going to tell you, I-, I-, I tried so hard, so hard to get through the entire segment. She was on several minutes. I'm still not sure what she said or was saying or was trying to say. Like, I I tried not to glaze over. And clearly, clearly, I put this out on uh, on my Twitter account yesterday and said, what do people think of this? Let me ask an innocent question. And people just couldn't believe it. Irritated beyond belief. All the running out of the clock. Here's some of her talk. Because remember, we just had a fall economic statement. You should be able to put things in simple terms for Canadians. What does this do for my bottom line? What's this do for my wallet? And instead, we got a lot of this. That's why our economic plan, it is really at its heart about investing in Canadians, investing to ensure that we have an economy that can deliver good jobs, people can count on, that supports them with things like early learning and childcare. And the way that we can continue to do that is by making sure that all of those plans and programs are contain are you know built on this fiscally responsible foundation. It continued on. I mean, people have documented. Well, that politician just gives word salads, but some of those salads have a few more words than others. It kept going. Our fall economic statement is about ensuring that we can continue to invest in Canadians because what I really believe makes things like early learning and childcare possible is that they are built on a sustainable fiscal foundation because that means we can keep on doing it year after year after year. And I really believe that the investments that we are making today and those are investments that are ongoing based on things we launched in previous budgets. Those investments are going to deliver strong, sustainable economic growth that means we can continue to do more things for Canadians going forward. You, are you getting a lot of details out of that? Like, that's 28 seconds, then it's another 28 to 29 seconds. Are you getting any details about what this does for you? No, not really, are you? Is this telling you anything about money you would end up saving, a program that you could sign up for? Something, you know, next year when you do your taxes in February or March, when you send all your stuff um, online, TurboTax, tax, however you're going to do it, to Revenue Canada. Are you understanding anything about what could save you money or what could be better for your, even your neighbor, your mom, your kids who live on their own now? Nothing. Nothing. And by the way, like, again, I'm digging in here, but this is somebody we pay. This is somebody our tax dollars provide a salary to. And I've said this before, and I cannot figure out for the life of me. I had people look me straight in the eye who know their stuff, and they would explain to me that this is Justin Trudeau's successor, that this is somebody Justin Trudeau's going to turn the keys over to with the good times of the Liberal Party, three straight election wins. This is the next prime minister. This isn't a competent politician, period, at any level. She's not a reasonably competent, easy-to-understand politician. 
And some people thought she would make a potential prime minister. They really did. And I can't figure that out. I've been trying. I do everything I can. I'm trying to figure that one out as hard as I tried to watch that entire interview yesterday. The questions were great. The questions were very direct. The questions were very pointed. But you're not telling me the details. And on and on and on. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. The founder of McDonald's Canada passed away over the weekend, uh, but he, he did a lot more than that. The history of McDonald's in Canada is rather remarkable. The very first McDonald's opened in 1955 by an, an just an industrious human being named Ray Kroc. Michael Keaton plays Ray Kroc in the movie The Founder which I thought this was a couple of years after I think Keaton was looked like he was going to win the Oscar for uh, Birdman and didn't. He lost to Eddie Raymond. Um, and, and and I thought, OK, this will be another nomination. It wasn't. But it is a great movie. I bet you didn't know, though, McDonald's came to uh, B.C. and not many people noticed it. There was the first McDonald's in Richmond, B.C., but it's when George Cohan got involved and made a deal to have all the McDonald's under his name. Uh, from basically Ontario East. And the first McDonald's was not in Toronto, but was in London, Ontario in 1967. I would have guessed it was way earlier than that. That was 12 years after it was in America. And George Kohan, as I said, a lot more than that, um, passed away over the weekend. Uh, Eric Cam is our uh, friend and, uh, of course, a Toronto Metropolitan University professor, economics professor, often on with Roy Green show on the weekend as well, which airs across the Chorus Radio Network. You didn't meet George Kohan, but he was a larger than life figure that everybody knew about, right? I, you know what? Yeah, I met his son, Mark, a couple times. Um, we were talking about sort of those famous business people a couple of weeks ago and how fast we're losing them. And I'm sorry that we left Mr. Kohan's name out. I think the most remarkable mm. thing about that man, and there's a lot to choose from, is that because of a chance meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, he became the first person to open up a McDonald's in Russia. And you think about that now. I think people listening are going, what's the big deal? Well, you imagine. No, when he, it was. It was a humongous deal. He penetrated the Iron Curtain in a way that really probably only Nixon had before. And he brought, in a lot of people's eyes, capitalism to Russia. And I don't know how you can understate that, Greg. Yeah, you can't. I, I don't think you can. It's rather, rather remarkable. And that was the concept was we share some capitalism with communist countries or formerly communist countries after the Berlin Wall came down. Let's see whether they get a taste for capitalism. I would make the case successful in some countries, not so much in others. Let's put it that way. No, but you use the verb taste. And I think that wasn't an accident. And that's exactly right. He was a person who never really cared a lot about borders. And he was born American. He basically became Canadian, but I don't think he saw corporatization and capitalism. I think he saw those factors, which some people use as divisive things. I think he thought they could bring the world together. And I think he used McDonald's as a way to soften borders and tear down walls. And again, if you weren't alive when that Berlin Wall came down, it's hard to explain that at a time I was just on the end of my being a teenage years. The thought of opening up a McDonald's in Russia, I mean, it was ridiculous. And he didn't just open up one, he opened up a chain. And I remember the pictures of him with Gorbachev and other people from the former Soviet politic, and they're holding hands and holding their arms in the air together. And I think, I would argue, he did things 
that even American presidents couldn't do. So he was an amazing guy. I know we're circling back around on the fall economics statement. I've seen reviews to, to call what the what the liberals and Christopher Freeland put forward as restrained. I've seen people say it's gloomy. Um, I've seen people see some promise in some new housing plans. What was your observation of it? I thought it was a big load of garbage. And what I do when I go through these things, I heard it, I listened to it is I try to tear through the gobbledygook like what you played with Miss Freeland. So I try to go through and say, where's the help for Canadians? And I went through and I read the whole thing about the houses being built, the clampdown on Airbnb, the supposed help for mortgage holders, and I found nothing. I don't see anything here that increases the the disposable income of Canadians by one lousy dollar is this what governments do though they stretch it out i we saw this i think with long-term care in ontario and we saw this with what they're going to pay psws and even at the heart of the pandemic in the heart of the pandemic eric the concept was well we'll pay psws and we're going to start a we're going to give them a two dollar increase and that's going to start in the middle of 2025 and you're like how are you encouraging anybody to stay in the industry or go in the industry there's nothing in the here and now sometimes in these statements by all forms of government but this has nothing in the here and now, and I'm not sure it has much in the future. They talk about all this housing being built. Where are they going to build this housing? Where is it going? Which urban center? Answer, none, because there's no land. So where are they going to build these houses? How far away from urban centers? And if they're going to be as far away as I think they're going to be, looking at the numbers that they've produced, who's going to buy them? Where's the transportation going to come from? And are those jobs just going to magically emerge where those houses are built? I have so many questions about this. And one of the things that drives me the most crazy mm. is this clampdown on Airbnbs, which we don't really have time to get into. Mm. But I hate when the public sector starts to blame the private sector. For me, that's the white flag when the public sector says, we just don't know what to do anymore. So let's blame the private sector and clamp down. But we know this is just going to push the gray market into the black market. I don't like this document. It says to me two things. Mm. One, we are not going to win the next election. And two, we have completely given up on the ideas of deficits and debts because they are going to go higher than anybody could have ever dreamed. Um, one on Bad Boy Furniture on Friday, um, it was kind of put out there that they begun clearing out $25 million in inventory. So there, there's something that happens when a store declares bankruptcy. They can either shutter it and sell off the parts uh, without the public being involved or they can keep the doors open as they restructure their business. They're going to do the latter. But, Eric, I'd be going crazy if, uh, you know, they're selling cheap merchandise to people. And let's say I put a deposit on something that I won't get back. I can't get the furniture. I can't get my deposit. And yet people are walking into Lastman's Bad Boys stores and being able to to, to just pick off what's left. It would drive me nuts. Why is that allowed in, in, uh, in an industry? Because, in a sense, business owners generally choose to file bankruptcy for one reason. They're insolvent. But that doesn't mean they don't want to stick around and still do business. So because of our laws in Canada, and I'm not a lawyer, but I have read up on this and talked to some people, the laws are in place to give you, in a sense, the degrees of freedom to restructure your corporation. So the number one benefit of filing for bankruptcy or bankruptcy protection is that all debts are frozen. And so when you, in a sense, come back or file to come back, the debts that were there before may never, ever get paid. So sadly, uh, bankruptcy in Canada, much like declaring Chapter 11 in the States, mm. is one of the loopholes that exists to watch your debt vanish while you restructure your corporation. Is it fair? I don't know. 
but it's one of those loopholes that businesses can use to come back sometimes, Greg, stronger than ever. Who would have to rewrite bankruptcy laws to protect the working class better, um, not necessarily punish the rich? I mean, you're bankrupt, so you may not be as rich as you once were, but it just feels like bankruptcy laws protect the rich and they don't protect the working class. You know, we could do this all day. You're right. That's what bankruptcy laws do. The same way as right now, renter laws protect renters and not landlords. I mean, it's just one of the give and takes in government that you have to live with. Mm. Right now, it, those books in terms of bankruptcies are balanced in terms of the owners of businesses. And you know what? I think at the end of the day, what the Canadian government would like for these companies to do is to come back, is to be successful, is to provide more competition. So I don't see that trend changing, Greg. All right, Eric, thanks so much for the time this morning. Appreciate it. Stay healthy. Eric Cam joining us. Uh, he's a professor of economics at TMU. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's zero in right now on a story that was kicking certainly around Friday morning, but then escalated over the weekend. And that's that of encampments in the city of Toronto. There was an encampment in front of a church near Kensington Market that was cleared out on Friday afternoon. Residents were offered shelter spaces. We didn't hear from the mayor, Olivia Chow, on Friday, but she did have these comments yesterday morning, speaking of a couple other encampments that were cleared. I know that uh, all of the uh, people staying in that encampment have been offered uh, shelter hotels with wraparound services. So they would get the kind of support uh, that they need. And uh, I believe that uh, five of them have accepted Okay, Rafi Aaron is a spokesperson for the Interfaith Coalition to Fight Homelessness. He's the co-coordinator of the Out of the Cold Meal Program at St. Luke's United Church. Rafi, thanks for agreeing to come on. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Greg. Um, what kind of weekend was this for you? There's there's considerable emotion. There's investment in some of the people that you meet that don't have homes that are, you know, to, to use your, that phrase, out of the cold. How did you feel this weekend watching some of what was happening in the city? Well, it, I mean, it was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. Um, the Out of the Cold Meal program at St. Luke's ha- does outreach, and we've been bringing, uh, you know, hot meals twice a week uh, to St. Stephen's in the field. So we got to know the people there, um, and it's just very, very hard to see this forced displacement at this time. Um Normally, like the city is turning away close to 300 people every night from its shelter because they're short of beds. And as someone who does outreach, I can tell you that that number is far higher. It's somewhere around 375 because so many people are no longer able to get a bed and they've been trying for two years. They simply don't call in for one. Yeah. And so, I mean... And an encampment clearing is not really an encampment clearing. It's a death sentence for those people. Now, five people agreed to go into the shelters. Is a shelter not a safer place, a warmer place with more benefits for those people? Some people agree to go in. Some people don't. Isn't it a better spot to be for the people that go in than the tents? So here's the problem. We, We give out between 16 and 20 meals. We gave out last Sunday 16 meals there. The city coerced a lot of people to leave. They use thinning out tactics, and there's the always. What's that? that Tell me what that means. What's thinning out tactics? 
Well, I mean, they come and they say, look, you're going to, you know, you're going to receive a warrant or you're going to be arrested or the police are going to be here. And people get, you know, it's very traumatic. The, the, the conditions that brought you to be unhoused are very traumatic. You don't need another layer of trauma. So what happens is people just get up and leave. So when the city arrived, instead of there being 16 or 20 people, there were already there were only eight. And where do we think there. the other ones go? So this is the problem, yeah. and this is why I say it's a death sentence, because instead of being in one area where we where they can support each other and we yeah. can also support them with meals, social workers, um, medical professionals, et cetera, they disperse. They're in ravines. They're here. They're there. So last night, no meals were brought yeah. to those people. We can't locate them. They're isolated. And then you hear about, you know, you hear about people dying. Um, you know, out in the cold. This is how it happened. Rafi, what about the neighbors? Can you put yourself in their shoes and and say, we want to be able to walk down the street. We want to be able, we want our kids to be able to play in the park. Do you see their side of this, this argument that the encampments just can't be there in the long term? The problem is, again, that the city needs them. If you don't want encampments, you've got to build housing. You can't use a seasonal approach where you expand, uh, you know, the services, the respites, the shelters in the winter and then collapse them in the spring. Homelessness is 365 days a year. And what I want to say is, you know, it's interesting, this thing about uh, there being danger or something in an encampment. An encampment is just a collection of tents. And about two months ago, one of our volunteers has a young son and she said, you know, I'd like you to go over to Allen Gardens with her and yeah. show him what's going on. And I mean, we went, he met people, he saw, hey, this is like my neighborhood. Some people seem very, very nice. There's a couple here that, you know, I'm not certain about. But, you know, there was no uh, danger. A lot of the danger comes because to the people in the encampments from outside because they're easy prey. But the other thing is... But that's a reason not to have them, isn't it? Like, let me push back on That's a reason not to have them there. Because you said the the people in there aren't safe. They're not safe, but they don't have any alternative. If the city's turning away 300 people a night, or as I'm saying, it's probably closer to 375, what choice do they have? Yeah, it's tremendous. It's tremendous government neglect. Uh, But uh, again, people will say to you... I want to just say to you as a parent, okay? As a parent, right? One of the things... You're talking about the neighbors. I understand after volunteering in this sector for 16 years that it could be any one of our children. It could be any one of us. Okay. I've seen people from every walk of life become home. I believe it. I I absolutely believe that. So when I'm, I understand that I need to have compassion and empathy and it may be an inconvenience and it may be an eyesore, but it's a lot better than having people isolated that we can't feed or support. I want to I'm out of time, but I want to have more conversations. I'd love to have a longer conversation with you about this because you're right. Nobody's winning right now. There isn't the infrastructure. Nobody wants this. Nobody wants the encampment. We want a better solution. Everybody does for these people. I, I got to leave it there. But let's ha- let's have more chats about this. Rafi, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much.
Rafi Aaron uh, joining us. Uh, he's uh, from the Interfaith Coalition to Fight Homelessness. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Our next guest was communicating with a 10-year-old hostage who spent part of her summer at an overnight camp near Toronto just this past summer. And I can't imagine uh, the joy he felt in seeing that she had been released along with her siblings as well. He's a a lawyer here in Toronto, and his name is David Matlow. David, thanks for letting us reach out, and thanks for coming on the show this morning. Good morning, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. Let's go go sort of reverse chronological order. How did you feel on the weekend when you first got word uh, Offrey Broduch was going to be released? She's 10 years old. And how did you feel seeing the coverage of it and just making sure that she was? Well, I was absolutely in tears when I first heard that her, her two sisters, and her next-door neighbor, the the four-year-old girl, um, Abigail Idan, who President Biden was talking about, Mm -hmm. they were together with with, uh, the Broderich's mother, Hagar, and that they were released on Sunday was an absolute joy and and relief, but uh, mixed with concern because there remain 183 or so hostages still in the hands of Hamas terrorists. But I was thrilled for the Brodich family, uh, but remain concerned until every last one of them returns. Backing up a few days, Thursday comes and you keep hearing about this ceasefire and then there's a delay and then there's an ask from one side that that you don't know that the other side will accept. Were you hopeful even back middle of the week last week that your friend, this 10-year-old who you were communicating with, and we'll get to that, was going to be one of the people released um, sooner rather than later. I was absolutely hoping so that the 50 um, hostages that were to be released over four days were women and uh, mothers and children. And so that uh, obviously she was with her younger siblings and her mother. So there was a prospect, high prospect she would be on the list. But the nervousness uh, remained until I could see them crossing the border uh, from Gaza back into Israel. And the nervousness is justified that they're supposed to be in exchange for another 11 hostages today. And that um, a release of another 11 hostages. And that's held up because based on reporting that I'm seeing, uh, Hamas is um, reneging on the portion of its deal, which has mothers needing to be returned with children. And imagine a mother having to leave without her child or a child leaving without her mother, which happened on Saturday with one of the hostages, not Ofri. So it remains tense. It was tense from from the first time I heard the transaction. I was happy when Ofri and her family uh, were freed, um, but remain concerned for everybody else. And, and the concern is justified based on the events of this morning. David Matlow is joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. How did you start writing? We, we uh, You know, you're writing letters to a 10-year-old girl that's being held by Hamas terrorists. How did that start? It starts, of course, on October 7th when we were all witnessing the the horrible events of that day when the Hamas terrorists killed 1,200 uh, innocent people in Israel and took over 200 hostages, 240 hostages. And, and my, my that very first day, I started to see videos of hostages being taken away, children, the, the, the young lady who was in the back of a, of a truck and then her, was pulled by her hair into the backseat, bleeding uh, mm-hmm. and, and their pants. 
Um, and so the issue of hostages was something that was mortifying and horrifying from the very first day. A couple of weeks um, um, after that, I saw on a, a WhatsApp group that I'm on that uh, a girl who was a camper at camp at an Ontario summer camp last summer was one of the hostages, this 11-year-old girl, Ofri. I don't know Ofri. I never met her. And when we talk about correspondence, it's a one-way correspondence. It was me writing to her. But I have uh, three children. They went to summer camp, and we used to send letters to our kids at camp. Yeah. So I thought of the idea, let's write her, care of the Red Cross. The Red Cross, since World War One, has the mandate to deliver letters to hostages and packages, but in this case, letters, and began an initiative to have letters written to Ofri from the camping community, and then that became a broader initiative across Canada, and then through an organization in Israel, through 45 Jewish communities around the world. It's an, the idea... Yeah, I was going to say, it's so incredible because I think most people wouldn't think that you would have that access. Most people wouldn't think it possible. You did. You were very uh, resourceful and driven to do this. Are, are you hopeful to meet her someday, soon? I hope I hope that she's fine. I hope she goes back to camp. It's not important to me that I meet her. Um, what's important to me is she's reunited with her family. I'd love the opportunity. Um to do that, but more importantly, I would just be thrilled for that her and her family, with a with a the love of her her extended family and the people of Israel, which you're seeing on TV, how warmly they're welcomed, mm. just resumes her life as an 11 year old girl should do. Whether I meet her or not is not important to me. People say to me, David, you know, basically, how are you doing with checking in on on other people? I'm not Jewish. I'm not I'm not Muslim. But I'll tell you what I want. I want this conflict sorted. I don't want our kids growing up and doing, you know, the things that that we did for 30 years with these ebbs and flows of maybe there'll be peace, maybe there'll be a two-state solution. But I'd ask you what you view and and how and the and the lessons you're imparting even to your kids about what you're hopeful for if this conflict ever does get resolved. I'm hopeful for peace. Uh, I'm hopeful that innocent people of of Palestinian, Jewish, and everyone. Do not die. I hope that there is a way forward through this tragedy, through this horror that's being experienced, frankly, on on, uh, on both sides. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization, but they're a very minor uh, segment of the Palestine, Palestinian population. Innocent Palestinians are sadly dying as a result of the actions that Hamas took. So I am hopeful that there's a way forward. Both parties have a narrative. And do we look backwards and get nowhere? Or do we look forwards and try and fashion a future that is good for everyone? I believe that everybody wants the same thing, to live in peace, to raise their children, to have a little fun, to do good things, to make the world better. Most people want that, and we can't allow those that want something different to ruin it for the vast majority. 
David Madlow, what you did reaching out to that young girl uh, again, just, you know, my chest was about to cave in reading the story and it's been tense watching these negotiations on television and the actual transfers and for every uplifting moment, there's a horrifying moment, hoping that, that these people can find some element of normalcy again. Thank you very much for what you did and your time today sharing your story with our, our audience. And it's my pleasure. And may I just remind your listeners, there are 180 to 200 hostages still there. We've got to keep the pressure on until that happens. And if you'd like to help in doing that, please write letters to the Red Cross uh, in Ottawa. It's on Cooper Street. You can find the address. And I've addressed them to Conrad Sauvey, the president and CEO. Let's keep the pressure on until every last one of them is home safely in their loving family. We'll pass that along for sure, uh, just as you just did, David. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you. Have a good day. There's David Matlow joining us. He's a lawyer in Toronto. And uh, as he said, he's watching the coverage with his family and he starts thinking, I want to reach out and and finding out the name and finding out a way to get her those letters from the Red Cross. Did, did she get to read them? Those are the things we don't know right now because she's just been released in the last day and a half. But you certainly hope so.